Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. One historic event can ripple far into the future. Just ask Robert Swan. Growing up in England during the 1960s, Swan was captivated by the distant story of explorer Robert Falcon Scott, who died during a failed expedition to the South Pole in 1912. In time, Swan's fascination grew into a personal quest to follow in Scott's footsteps and to come back alive. Very few people gave him a prayer of accomplishing his goal. Fewer still were willing to help. But he persevered and achieved something truly remarkable. Swan's journey to become the first man to walk to both the North and South Poles is full of adventure, hardship, ecstasy, and pain. It offers many universal lessons. More than anything else, his story demonstrates the power of single-minded devotion. It can move mountains, and it can lead you into the history books. Robert, great to have you with us today. Where are you right now? I'm in San Francisco uh, in a place called Chrissy Field, overlooking my favorite bridge on the planet, the Golden Gate Bridge. Marvelous piece of architecture. Just an incredible, incredible bridge. I love it. I live uh, in Northern California, just about 60 miles from Lake Tahoe. Uh, I live in a place called Auburn, which was where the gold rush started in 1848. Uh, with me, there's plenty of rush, but not much gold yet, Keith. I'm working on it. Let's talk about the making of a polar explorer. Tell me about growing up in England. Well, I, I was number seven of a family. So when it came to me, honestly, if I'd said I was going to fly to the moon, people would have said, well, whatever, just get on with it. When you're the last in a family, people aren't really 
particularly uptight about who you are and what you're doing. So I was pretty much a historian ever since kind of day one, really, in my life. And I was finding at the age of 11 this idea of the Cold War quite disturbing and not so much just from a sense of survival, but people said to me that we could blow up the entire planet with the nuclear arsenal. We had enough firepower to blow up the entire place 3,000 times. And as an 11-year-old, I was thinking, what would that look like? Why bother to do it more than once? And it, it confused me, upset me, and... I, I find I find it was rather negative as a kid growing up, that looming threat of this possible Cold War escalating, etc. And I came across this place, Antarctica, through the stories of the real explorers. And I'd like to make that clear. I'm not an explorer. I'm merely a traveler. And I read the stories of Scott of the Antarctic, uh, his tragic journey to the pole where he died with his whole team, uh, beaten by the brilliant Amundsen from Norway, read about uh, Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer, who had this dream of crossing the whole of Antarctica on foot, but never actually got to the shore of the Antarctic uh, because his ship was crushed by ice and sank, uh, the famous endurance ship. And all these stories piled in on me. And I was also truly inspired by the place, Antarctica. There was no one there. There was no one pointing bombs at each other. So like any other 11-year-old, I embraced this place, Antarctica. And that's where it began. And to be honest with you, maybe I'm a lazy person, but those dreams, those ideas, 50 years later, are still with me. Nothing's changed. What was it about Scott's expedition? A tragic figure, Scott. What was it about his story that captivated you as a young boy? I think there were lots of reasons to be fascinated by the real explorers. There was Scott, a man bound by the Royal Navy, which was a hugely kind of hierarchical organization strict rules. There was this guy selected to make this journey on behalf of the British Empire, which used to be something in those days. I mean, now we're a bunch of losers sitting on an island and not even part of Europe. But in those days, we were quite something uh, in the early 1900s. And Scott was selected to deliver the South Pole for the British Empire. And huge amounts of pressure on the guy. And he interested me from a leadership point of view, the tragedy, the tragedy of walking 883 miles with all kinds of different modes of transport, dogs, ponies, but it ended up just with him and his team. And then on the horizon, as they closed in on the South Pole, which I've done a few times now, there was the flag of Norway flying there. Scott had been beaten by Amundsen and there was no one else in or no one else on the Antarctic continent except these two teams and he'd been beaten 
forestalled by one month at the poll. And people have gone on endlessly in history and books and films saying, why did Captain Scott die? Well, Captain Scott died because he was beaten by Amundsen. To go back, having come second and the British Empire beaten by the Norwegians that had a population of, I don't know, one million people, this was not a good story to go back with. So Scott died and his team died because they had no hope. And without hope in Antarctica, you're dead. And uh, this story just grasped my imagination. It, it really took me in. All those decades later, when you were growing up in the 60s and 70s, what did Scott represent to you? And what was interesting even then in me is that I, I quite like leveling the score in life. And deep down inside me, even when I was that age, I thought maybe I can beat those bloody Norwegians <laughs> and have Captain Scott won, Amundsen won. Deep down, I, I even thought about that then. But what Scott represented to me was the transition of empire. That when I was brought up, I went to a school, I, my whole education, most of my family, were either actively part of the Second World War, people I grew up with had actively been part of the First World War, and words like truth, honor, justice, sacrifice, they, they weren't old-fashioned words when I grew up. And how Scott handled the situation of being beaten, how he held his team together, you know, Scott, one of Scott's amazing achievements, which no one recognizes, but I do, is that when I walked to the South Pole, I think I filled in about two pages fully in my diary. Scott would write a page every night, even when he was dying. And that takes some effort with a pencil, with frozen fingers, and you've got no heat in your tent, trust me, that takes incredible commitment and discipline. So how Scott wrote and what he wrote, the style in which he wrote, speaks to, it spoke to me at the age of 11, it still speaks to me now, the tragedy, but somehow making sense of what they were doing uh, and even made sense to a certain extent of their deaths. So it wasn't, you know, glory, uh, empire, victory. It weren't, those weren't the words that inspired me. I was really interested in seeing what it would be like and whether I could actually make it to the pole. Uh, it, was, it was as physical a challenge as well as a kind of historical challenge some way in me. It's hard to describe it, but it was inspirational, no question about it. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, 
where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Okay, it's one thing for an 11-year-old to have this ambition. But in those early adult years, how did you first start to actually chase this dream? Well, I think one of the main inspirations for this is that I have all those brothers and sisters older than me. And having some experience, they just said to me when I was talking about this, they said, Rob, do it. Do it now. Because if you don't, you'll never do it. You'll get a house, you'll get married, you'll get a job, and you'll never do it. Attack now. And I think that was probably one of the best pieces of advice, that I didn't hang around. I finished my education. I got a degree in, of course, ancient history, being a historian. And rather than going off and doing anything, I immediately got into my old car, drove to London, hired a very small piece of an old warehouse very near to where Scott prepared for his journey and Shackleton too, and started to try and raise the money. I did it immediately. Uh, That was to prove a little bit of a mistake because no one was to take me seriously for a really long time. But I started that immediately because I knew if I didn't, possibly it would just be a lot of words rather than something that would actually happen. So I made a commitment pretty, pretty early on uh, to make it happen. The people you pitched, what did they say when you told them you wanted to mount an expedition to the South Pole? Well, I think it's important, Keith, to realize that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an explorer. You know, I, I, I can tie two really important survival knots. I cannot navigate without a GPS. In fact, I still find it difficult to navigate with a GPS. Uh, I am not a mountaineer. I, I honestly don't know really very much about clothing or I know about cold weather because I've experienced it. But at that stage in my life, I knew nothing. All I had was the dream. And quite rightly, when I proposed this idea to people at the beginning, they would say, Rob, there's no ways we're going to support you because you're going to go and die. So we don't want to sponsor a dead body just like Captain Scott. It wasn't the best sales pitch, let me say. (laughs) But I did learn something. I learned something early on in life, and I still use that now, is that if you listen People don't listen much. Hopefully they're listening to the podcast, which I'm very grateful for. But people don't listen. But if you listen carefully as to why people say no to you, 
really carefully with respect ask questions like okay tell me why not eventually if you listen long enough you'll start to get some people to say yes and that's how i did it it took me five years working as a taxi driver on the streets of london where nothing happened i raised nothing people were talking in terms of counseling and psychiatric help but like what what was i doing with my life everybody was saying no but eventually after five years it started to come together and the total time it took would be seven years of massive effort just to get the dream to start never mind to get it done so persistence listening holding it together and i think being rather blind actually as to other things you know all my friends had sort of fancy jobs and they were doing all these things and i had nothing but the longer i did it the more that i knew i'd have to do it the more that i talked to people and said to people this is what we're doing the more i would have to be committed to doing it and it's something i say to a lot of people so you know one one way you can make a dream happen is to talk about it so much that you end up having to do it and that was the case for me what you're talking about here is the power of obsession right i'm not too sure about obsession but i think a very focused view a very very focused view of what you're doing with not much coming in i would say focused not possibly obsessional but focused and realizing that eventually it would actually happen but with having really very little idea except history books of what that happening would be like which is quite interesting had i known at that stage how appalling it would be I'm not sure whether I would have kept the focus and actually delivered it in the end. So not knowing was quite useful. There were various steps to this historic undertaking. First of all, you had to raise the money to buy a ship. Yeah, to go to Antarctica 30 years ago, now people, just like myself, have the privilege of flying there. But then there were no aeroplanes that went there that you could uh, charter. So you had to buy a ship, sail to Antarctica, live there a year, be left there on your own for a year, make the journey and hope like hell the ship came back to the edge of Antarctica with an aeroplane that would collect you. So it was pretty much like the real explorers had done all those years before. So it cost like five million US dollars. Anybody listening who's good with mathematics, which I'm not, $5 million in the early 1980s is a stacked load of money then, but just think how much it is now. This was a lot of money. Yeah. Buy the ship, get things going, and sail that ship from London the whole way to New Zealand, and then go south off the map to Antarctica. Massive undertaking. And I think this is where, possibly because I'm lazy, and might be that I'm not a bad leader occasionally, that I had things divided up. My job was to raise the money. 
Pete Malcolm, my best friend, his job was to get the ship and get the ship ready. Roger Meir, who would make the journey to the South Pole possible, he was in charge of the polar journey itself. And Gareth Wood, our incredible logistics uh, maestro uh, from Canada, he would be in charge of our base camp. So everything was divided up. And across those boundaries, no one would bother to be saying, what are you doing? So each person had their own area, their own responsibility, and their own delivery necessary with that. And I think that was one of the key areas of our hopefully modest success is that we divided it up. People had their own responsibility and they got on with it. How did you recruit investors? Well, in those days, one didn't really call it investors. I think I had, I've always been a person that's raised money from a lot of people. So, you know, 500 bucks here, a thousand bucks there. I mean, if you look at the back of our old book that we wrote on this, I mean, I think the last 10 pages of the book are lists of people that supported us. So it was no big major sponsors that came forward with money. It was lots of smaller people giving us donations towards what we were doing. But the key to it, absolute key was that I realized that I would have to go back to the sponsors that had or partners you didn't call them sponsors then but supporters of people like Shackleton and Scott a hundred years before so I researched those there was no internet to go and like Captain Scott sponsors and up it come it took months going through records in the British Museum to get those names and then found that a lot of those names of the companies no longer existed, but I traced who those companies had been bought by and was able, for example, to walk into Barclays Bank in London and say, you sponsored Captain Scott, but the name of your bank then was Cox and Bidolf in 415 The Strand, London. And these people probably just helped me to get rid of me. But that's how I did it eventually. It's how we did it. And also a key to this was the energy necessary to do it. So if you have a ship, which we got, you need to fuel that ship. You need to survive in Antarctica. So we got Shell, the oil company then. They're now more of a gas company. But Shell had supported Captain Scott 75 years before and they came forward with the fuel to power our expedition. So to answer your question, it was like a big jigsaw that gradually began to fill in. And probably, you know, one of the major sponsors was me uh, creating a huge amount of debt. But at that stage, I honestly didn't care. Whatever it took, we were going. Now, what do you think they were sponsoring? Why did they want to help you? I think what, what people... You've got to remember the world has incredibly changed in 30 years. They were sponsoring a dream. They were sponsoring a respect for history. They were sponsoring something that was truly, and it still is, but with GoPros and you know, all the rest of the you know, social media we have nowadays, it's still like going into outer space to walk to the pole, but in 
those days it was like walking into outer space. They were sponsoring three people where more people, Keith, had stood on the moon than walked to the pole when we did it. So it was really like taking something pretty much into outer space, respecting history and providing a dream, providing support for a dream, which, which is incredible to say now, but somehow that's not good enough anymore. You've got to wear a kind of baseball cap with the sponsor's name on it, or you've got to do this or do that. 30 years ago, having a dream and people helping that happen still was pretty good news. A dream that required you to risk your life. Yes, this, this was a possibility that we were attempting the longest unassisted march ever made anywhere on earth in history. And we had no radio, no backup, no way out, no support. So we would start with 80 days of food and fuel, 360 pounds on each sledge, and we'd have 800, 900 miles to go, and we'd either get there or not come back. So yes, there was that element of possibly not coming back. Now what's very, very interesting is that because that was the scenario we faced, we, I believe, prepared so well for that with every single possibility mainly by the great Roger Meir and Gareth Wood who you know are good at all that sort of thing I'm not but they were that if you've got no backup you don't mess up and I think that in some of today's exploration where people have got a satellite phone or they have got a way of communicating or possibly even being picked up by an aeroplane, which wasn't in our case. I think that people don't quite prepare as well as they could uh, because they know or they think there's a way out. And, you know, people can make mistakes in that direction and maybe even lose their lives. So I think that our preparation and people also then I know this is a really odd thing to say, and funnily enough, I was thinking about it this morning, that had we not come back, it wouldn't have been frontline news. It wouldn't have been, you know, splashed all over the media because it would just have been, these guys ain't coming back. And there wouldn't have been some great expose on why we didn't come back or what went wrong or whatever. It wouldn't have been. It would just have been, well, they didn't make it, and God bless them sort of thing. Uh, there was not that focus of media that people now have. Therefore, the people that sponsored us, yes, they wanted us to live, but they weren't thinking, oh, my God, we better cover our butts in case these guys don't come back because we'll get bad PR. People didn't think like that 30 years ago. They do now. Tell me about departing from England on this grand adventure. The dream is now tangible. November 3rd, 1984. Well, we sailed from England on board our ship, Southern Quest, and it took 70 days to reach New Zealand. Uh, and 
once in New Zealand, we resupplied and then headed south. And it's 12, 14 days sail from New Zealand to the edge of Antarctica. Now, we were going very far south because we were going to the spot where Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen had had launched for the South Pole, roughly in that area, because it's quite near to the South Pole. So we were going very, very far south for a ship. And where we went was a place where ice is only absent from the ocean for about a month a year. And the rest of the time, there's ice covering the ocean. So you've got to go in there with your ship, just as Scott had done and Shackleton had done, go in, dump everything and everybody as fast as you can off the ship in January, and then the ship gets out fast before the ice closes in, and then you wait. You wait in your little house, which we had on the edge of Antarctica. We brought it all the way from London, and you survive for nine months inside that hut. Ship leaves you on your own. You're there and you face what's called the Antarctic winter. That's the first hard part of this journey. Four months of total darkness, uh, very isolated. You know, for those people listening, you know, you know iPhone to ring up mummy. You won't have the internet. You're not connected. You have no newspaper. You have no radio. You don't know what's going on anywhere on the planet. And you're stuck in a hut with four people apart from yourself that, you know, you kind of don't get on that well with. And it's going to be a hard, long nine months of waiting before you then launch to the South Pole in the month of November. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. You certainly face some uh, personality clashes. How did that make this incredible challenge even tougher? Well, I think if you took your own, if you took your best friends, you'd still hate each other after a month or so. But I chose people that were very strong, but very different. Because on any team, you've got to have the courage to choose people who are different to you are. Because on a team, if everybody's thinking the same and doing the same, you'll die. Well, what we needed were different attitudes, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things to survive. So we had all our bases, as you would say in America, all our bases covered, but that meant very different people. And it was a very tough nine months living in this hut, tiny little hut in the middle of Antarctica. But we came through it because we held respect for each other. What did you do all day? Well, it's an interesting point that a lot of people wonder what happens to a human being when you throw away your clock. We're all dominated by time. But actually, human beings are not designed to sleep for eight hours. Because had we done that in the Stone Age times, you know, we would have been attacked by a, the rival tribe or eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. So people are actually designed physically and psychologically only to sleep for about four hours, 
and then be up and then sleep for another four hours. Four hours on, then another four hours. Your body works best like that. So what we did, and to survive in Antarctica, there's a huge amount of stuff to do just to, to keep your system going. So what we had was five people, and once every five days, you were in charge of everything for 24 hours. And sadly, for the rest of the team, that included cooking, because I'm not very good at doing that. So you would be in charge once every five days of everything for 24 hours, everything. And the other four days, you could do really what you wanted to do. So those other four days would, be, would consist of some training. Uh, you'd go out, but you wouldn't be dominated by the clock. And interesting, if you throw away the clock, as I say, you basically sleep for about four hours, get up for about eight, then another four hours. It's interesting how your body works along those lines. And I took, I think, 50 books that I wished I'd always read or I felt I should have read or would want to read in the future. So a lot of reading. I typed letters on an old typewriter, which irritated the hell out of the rest of the team because of the noise of the typewriter. I'd write letters which were never posted for a year, but uh, they were letters to thank the sponsors, all of them, who kindly helped us get that far. What's the isolation like mentally? How do you deal with not knowing what's going on in the world? Well, it's quite nice, actually. Uh, and the more that you, you know, listen to the news and watch all the things that dominate our lives now, it, 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 which are mostly negative, I might say, uh, it was quite nice to be away from everything. And I think part of it also was that because there was no possible communication, nothing, then you had no worries about your family and your friends and your mother and your father and all these people because there was no ways of communicating with them. So therefore, you kind of switched off and just said, well, fine, you know, I don't have to send the WhatsApp to let people know what's happening. There just was no sense of communication. What was happening in the world, you didn't care about. The only thing we used to dream of was that what happened if the world ended, that was some terrible nuclear disaster, and we'd be the only people left. That was something we always talked about, and our ship wouldn't come to collect us because there was no ways it could make it. So that was an interesting mind game that we played. But you come through nine months of isolation, I suppose by really knowing what you're doing, why you're there, and that you made a choice to be there. And what did that choice say about you? I think the choice, this is when the reality of the dream began to kind of hit home. You know, I'd read the stories of the real explorers and read about their time, you know, in, in, in their huts waiting for nine months. But the reality of being in a hut for nine months with four people that you don't like and they don't like you is a bit more real than reading the diaries of Scott and Shackleton. So gradually the dawning of the reality of what I suppose I talked us into was beginning to dawn. And that reality would only actually get worse once we started walking to the pole. So this was a, 
a kind of reality time for me of going, my God, so this is what really I dreamed of doing. And maybe it's a bit of a nightmare, but either way, I need to finish it. Did you come to regret it? I don't like regretting anything. I'm not a person that regrets anything, really, just a few things maybe in life, but not much. No, I think that to regret is incredibly negative and a complete waste of time. No, I didn't regret it. I was proud of the fact we were there and what we were doing, but the reality of it was quite hard. It is hard. How do you know it's time to start walking? Well, there's two things. One is, you know, the date. Um, But secondly, when the weather starts to improve, it's then time to blast off. And, you know, I feel that there was also driving this a sense of quite serious ambition. And I'm not embarrassed to say this, that as a historian at school, at university, and my passion has always been history, that I was pretty much out to make my own one line in history. I was tired of reading about history. Could I make one line of history for me just to do it, to survive it? So at the very worst, during difficult times, either during our time waiting or at our hut or during the actual polar journey, that idea that, you know, I, I simply had to do this. And if we did do it, then at least I could feel that I'd done something that was pretty much out there. So there was a sense of ambition that sort of held it together. I wasn't too sure that ambition would make. It wasn't money and it wasn't being famous. It was more like an ambition for me just to do one thing, one line in the Guinness Book of Records, one line to say the first person stupid enough to walk to both poles, Robert Charles Swan, Britain. There was that at that stage, yes. I'm not um, foolish enough or, or deceitful enough to say that wasn't something that was driving me on a bit. What people tend to do now is to justify what they're doing for some other purpose. And to a certain extent, I have fallen into that trap myself. But it was very clear and quite inspirational just to say we're doing this to do it without saying we're going to raise a million dollars for some worthwhile charity or we're doing it to do this or we're doing it just to do it is not a bad thing you know why does why does a, a runner like captain bolt why does he win the 100 meters and the 200 meters in the fastest time ever. He's doing it to do it, and that's enough. So I think it's quite refreshing when I look back on it that we were doing it just to do it, and there's nothing wrong in that. Of course, making sense of of why you did it, perhaps giving back a little bit from why you did it afterwards is important, but during it, it's not a bad thing just to do it to do it. To young people today who don't have the context for that sort of ambition, what's your message to them? I would say two things. 
Um, one is to, you know, to use the ability that they have, as my son, who's often extremely rude to his father, uh, Barney is his name, and he says, well, Dad, you know, I, I've got more information on one push of a button on my telephone on Google or Ask or any of these things, I can get more information off one button than you've learned in your entire life, Dad. And I think that young people are today besieged by information, but they're lacking often in inspiration coming through that information. So any young person that I come across to say, hey, you know, use all of this. If I'd had it, all this technology, there were no mobile phones, there were no laptops, there was no Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, none of that stuff existed when we did this. So I would say to them, you know, embrace that technology and use it. But for goodness sake, don't be used by it which I see so many young people are used by that technology. And remember to have a few dreams. Don't live through the dreams of other people that you can Google or Facebook or have your own damn dream. And it doesn't have to be some big fancy thing like walking to the South Pole. I, I definitely stress against it because it's extremely tiring, very dangerous and actually on the on the whole quite boring to do it so don't <laughs> think you've got to do some massive thing but have a dream and that dream could be small but do it um right. that's what i try and say so you've stepped out of that hut how did it feel when you stepped out into the cold and started that journey absolute total and utter panic just completely overwhelmed by this moment where I had no idea really, you know, I was with two people that do things like climb the north face of the Eiger in winter and huge Himalayan mountain, I mean, proper professional mountaineers and travelers. I'd never done anything like this. So I walked out of that hut completely and utterly freaking out, panicking, worried, it was possibly one of the worst days of my life. Uh, and our sledges were hugely heavy, 360 pounds per person. No one in history had ever pulled a sledge that heavy. And I kind of worked out why on that day. So it was a really difficult day, but I did know one thing. And it was possibly the secret to me making it. And I think the secret to Roger and Gareth making it is that we didn't think of the pole. What we thought about was the next night, the next hour, the next cup of tea, the next moment. So dividing the journey, not thinking ahead, but thinking about one day at a time or one morning at a time, one hour at a time, one step at a time, that was very helpful. But those first few hours, complete panic. And then I began to settle into the journey. How cold was it? Well, at the beginning, not that cold, but probably in Fahrenheit, I don't know, mid-20s. Um, but it would get colder as we went to the pole. 
because you're going to high altitude and it would drop down to the minus 30s, minus, well, minus 40 is where the two scales join, Fahrenheit and Celsius. So, yeah, it would crank down to minus 40, but that doesn't matter. Cold is not a big issue. It's wind and cold. So wind and cold are a dangerous pair. They hunt, in a, hunt together, and together they're really dangerous. They, they are a fearsome duo of cold and wind together is what takes you down. So it was always wind that we would be uh, focused on the most, uh, uh, avoiding the wind. But guess what? When you walk to the South Pole, you're always, always um, walking into the wind because the winds come from the South Pole out to the edge of the Antarctic. So you're always walking into wind, which is slightly irritating. And it took you how long? It would take us 70 long days, nine hours a day, seven days a week, 70 days in a row, uh, because without radios, without any communication, if we run out of food, we'd be dead in five days. So we had to keep our averages up. Doesn't sound much, but we'd have to average 12 nautical miles a day, average. And you know full well, any listeners will know, that doesn't sound too awful. But if you miss a day, your average goes down miss two days your average has gone all the way down to about seven and then you've got to make it up and you can't do it in a day it takes a week to make your average back up so nine hours a day seven days a week 70 days in a row to the pole and our biggest fear wasn't just falling down a crevasse which would have been pretty grim but at least you probably would have died in the process but our biggest fear was that if we were navigating using the sun, a sextant and a watch, what would happen if we miscalculated and we were, let's say, 50 miles off course and we arrived 50 miles away from the South Pole? We wouldn't know where the hell it was. And we'd be right down to the wire on food. It was a thing that still lives in my nightmares that we would arrive at the pole and it wasn't there. But nothing to do with me, I might point out, but I was with the best. Roger and Gareth are just extraordinary human beings, and they navigated us 300 yards off course. And it one of the most extraordinary pieces of navigation uh, probably ever, really, um, to arrive at the South Pole Scientific Station run by the United States government. Uh, bang on target it was an extraordinary moment and yeah it, it was a moment that that was to turn our lives upside down but at least we got there was there ever a moment when you were dealing with this extreme challenge on so many levels when you thought you're not going to make it quite a few times actually is that we were using incredible new technology which Obviously, it's not that new now, but we were using for the runners on our sleds, underneath the sleds that we pulled, they would have this incredible new, it was like Teflon on a, a frying pan, uh, which, as you know, is non-stick. And we had this incredible new 
these new runners that had never been used before, they were like incredibly smooth. Um, but we were told by the people who made them that there was no grain on these runners. It didn't matter what way you put them on, they would be smooth. But we found out, or I found out, that uh, there was a grain. So after about 100 miles of the journey, my sled started to feel heavier than when I started. And what was happening, and I, you couldn't really see it, except through a magnifying glass, uh, that the runners on my sledge were starting to grow hairs, because it was like a piece of wood going against the grain across a surface, gradually it roughened it up. And I didn't know this. And gradually my sledge, rather than getting lighter every day, which it should have done because we were eating food and using fuel, was getting heavier. But being a stubborn idiot, <clears throat> I didn't really think. I just thought, well, I'll get better, or maybe this is how awful it's going to be. And after 400 miles of the journey, I came to a grinding halt. I couldn't move the damn thing. And I, we were dead, or I was dead, um, if I couldn't move the sledge. So my companions, Roger and Gareth, came back. And it was just a moment where they put my harness on and started to pull my sledge back to the base so we could get me better. And they couldn't move the damn sledge. We got it to base. We turned it over, and there were these hairs off the bottom of my runners. Uh, that night, we changed the runners down, smoothed them down. And the next day, I literally took off uh, as if there was no <laughs> sledge at all. So at that moment, I thought, game over, I'm dead. But we came back, and 500 miles later, we got there. What does it do to your psyche to deal day after day with a very real possibility that you might die that day? Well, not, not a huge amount, actually, unless you focus on it. And, you know, people far braver than I uh, are go to war. There are people at war today, uh, women and men risking their lives for what they believe in and their country. Uh, I think that you have to say to yourself, I've got this under control as much as I could or can. And if you start thinking you're going to die, you probably will die. So you have to remove those thoughts and just concentrate on the next day and the next hour. Concentrate fully on what condition you're in. Are you eating the right food? Are you resting enough? Is your clothing okay? So you're, you take your mind off the fact you might die by making sure you don't die. Pretty simple, really, but you can't think about dying because if it gets to you, you probably will die. So. No, you didn't think about it a huge amount. So you knew you were getting close, or at least you hoped you were getting close. Take me through that final day and how that felt. Well, closing in on the pole, you know, after 70 days, you've seen nothing, nothing. And suddenly you think this, this, you start to feel it before you see anything. But then right on the horizon is a little lump. And I thought, obviously, of how Scott had arrived at the pole and they'd seen a flag on the horizon and they couldn't believe it was a flag and it was the flag of Norway. So on the horizon, the good news was a little bump and we all triple-checked it, double-checked it. Obviously, we didn't carry binoculars because they're too heavy, 
Um, but we all checked and we said, yeah, that's definitely a lump on the horizon. It has to be the South Geographic Pole. An immense, immense relief. And as we closed in, it because you can see quite a long way, it didn't seem to get any damn bigger. So it got quite frustrating for us to be marching like for a day. And it didn't seem to get any bigger. That, that it took a long time to close in on the pole. And eventually it did start to get bigger. And we knew it was the pole. And there was a huge sense of relief. Uh, and a little bit of a sadness somehow that it was the end of a journey interesting to say that really but I being me was thinking about having a bath and having a jam sandwich that I dreamt about with lots of butter on it and we closed in and I think we arrived well I know we arrived at 11:53 at night so there wasn't anybody there and we came into the incredible base there the United States government does waste quite a lot of money on some quite strange things but any taxpayers listening, you spend good money on through the National Science Foundation on, on the fantastic science uh, that you do at the South Geographic Pole, a very worthwhile scientific station. But to be honest, they weren't expecting three people to walk in there. It's not like it happens. You know, it doesn't happen. So they got a bit of a shock when three people appeared looking pretty beat up arriving at the pole and we went into the station and we thought we dropped our sleds and we walked back out and we went to where exactly the South Pole is. It's marked, uh, the, the exact, exact South Pole itself. And we stood there and we were so proud. It was just the most extraordinary moment. Yes, we weren't best friends, but we'd done this together and it was a huge sense of relief, a huge sense that we'd done it all the people on the ship, all those supporters, all those years of battle, it was a great moment. And as we were standing there, the base commander from the South Pole, huge guy, massive beard, came out and he had tears coming down the side of his face. And I thought, well, you know, Americans are a bit emotional, but this looks a bit, a bit much. So what's going to happen next? And he came up and he said, Rob, I'm sorry, I've got bad news. Your ship, Southern Quest, was crushed by ice and sank five minutes ago. Five minutes. And we'd heard nothing from anybody for a year. So, frankly, it was just the sort of thing you want to hear when you've walked 900 miles that your rather pointless success had just turned into possibly a major disaster. Uh, that was a moment that I'll never forget. And what came into my mind at that moment was history. That that disappointment reflected through eternity of how Scott had felt standing there. That Amundsen, there was the flag of Norway. Huge disappointment that Shackleton, before it even started to cross Antarctica, in 1914, a dream I still held in my heart to achieve one day, had lost his ship. So all those pieces of history, ships sinking, Amundsen's flag, Norway beating the British, all those things piled into my head. But the most important thing was that everybody was safe. No one had lost their life. And that's really all that mattered in the end. 
I was in for probably the biggest fight of my life, but it didn't matter because everybody was okay. And we had reached the South Geographic pole on foot, something that people said could not be done in the way we did it. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.